This week on The Zone of Truth, Griff and I welcome on Chris to discuss malevolence, GMing for 2E, and of course, answer some listener questions. I'm your host, Steve, in the studio with your GM and my co-host, Griffin. Roll a will save. You're in The Zone of Truth. We're back. Yeah, finally. I was waiting for you to get through that intro. Listen, usually I can do them one and done. Usually. And fine. Yeah. But there are rare, infrequent instances where I flub a word and then I'm in my own head and need to do the intro usually four or five times. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm good. Yeah. I mean, like, I'd say it's maybe one in five. Yeah. Yeah. It always sucks when it falls on the live episodes. Because then it's like, well, I guess I'll just leave that in (laughs) bungling the word like malevolence or something or bungling a word that I say often on this show, like zone, you know, yeah, Yeah, this week on the zone of truth. Yeah. And maybe that was like a little, uh, what is it? The Freudian slip to your your favorite MP3 player. Yeah, because I used a zone until, um, geez, through college, I think. That's a long yeah. time to use the Zune. When did the Zune come out? Oh, boy. Like, it was around the same time as the original iPod. Yeah. They eventually did a touchscreen version, which I maintain was the best MP3 player and the best media player on for music. It was just really simply laid out. I really liked it. It was great. I would still use it if it was not like actively decommissioned. Yeah. Yeah. They gave up on it. Yeah. I mean, understandably, I don't think they were selling well or anything, but uh, no, um, it was great. I think maybe it's time for a comeback, you know, like Polaroid cameras are coming back, right? Stuff like that. Check the Facebook marketplace. I might have some zooms. Yeah. How you doing, Griff? Doing pretty well. Glad to hear that. How's your day been so far? Oh, you know, it was a little stormy out. Second time we've done one of these on a stormy day Mm -hmm. and you come over and the weather gets a little bit better. So I got trapped in the storm today. I didn't mention that earlier to you. How are you trapped? All right. Well, this, this is a good one. Car? I'll, no, I'll be quick. I'll be quick. My new apartment has a little private rooftop veranda up there, right? And what I've realized is that the key that I have to the apartment does not unlock that door. That's terrifying. Exactly. That's a bad situation. <laughs> exactly. And so I reached out to the leasing office and I'm like, hey, where's the key to my balcony door? And they're like, I don't know. And I'm like, okay, one, not cool. Two. What if I lock myself out there? Because with with that type of lock, I totally could have. I could flip the little button and then mm-hmm. walk outside and be stuck four floors in the sky and, you know, in trouble. So I went to the hardware store today and bought a new lock. And I was like, I'm going to replace this lock. Clouds are coming in. But I've, <laughs> I've replaced locks before. Usually takes five or ten minutes. Um, made a huge mistake. I started... It immediately starts pouring rain and I had taken the inside handle off and then realized the locking mechanism itself was still locked. So the door was locked closed, but the only handle on the lock was on the outside. So then I had to kind of reassemble it and then get it to open. And at that point, it was just like, I'm going to fucking change this lock and it's just pouring rain this is like blowing into my apartment i felt like i was on like a ship at sea or something and yeah it took me a really long time 
I got soaked. But yeah, I got stuck in the rain today because I tried to change a lock immediately before a thunderstorm. Yeah, it's probably bad timing, but I thought I could do it. But it was the fact that I did it wrong. If I just had done it right, I would have done it in time, like just in time. But I didn't. So here we are. Anyway, let's do what we're drinking first, because unlike the last 20 episodes of this show, we're not reviewing seltzers today. Oh, wow. And then we're going to go ahead and introduce our guest. We are splitting a beer that our guest let us drink. This is the Propagation of Thought. It's a sour ale with passion fruit, mango, ube, coconut, and vanilla. And it is from Tripping Animals Brewing Company. Ooh. Smells great. Looks thick. Sure does. Oh, that's really good. Unbelievable. That's got like a a hint of like cinnamon or something in it. Maybe. Yeah, something. I yeah, love really I love good. how strong the coconut comes through. Not in an overpowering way, just in enough to like mellow the flavor of the sourness. Yeah, the coconut's really prominent in that, but it almost gives me fall vibes though. I'm not really getting like the summer coconut. It's kind of Oh, like, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, reading through that ingredient list, you might think that this would be like a very tropical taste, but it's kind of not. I agree with like, you. I would almost drink that hot. Oh. That, which is okay, strange, sure. strange to say about sure. a beer. I don't think I disagree with that. It's like, it's got all of the really good parts of like a mulled wine or a mm-hmm. mulled cider, but it's also a sour beer. It's, yeah. it's really tasty. Delicious. Well, without further ado, let's bring on our guest. Super excited to have him back once again on the zone of truth everybody knows him uh he's running malevolence on the patreon feed player on bestow curse welcome back chris hey guys how's it going it's going well thanks for the beer yeah absolutely i now that i've dried off and i'm uh i'm drinking this beer i'm having a great day yeah that brewery is fantastic i'm so happy to be on again with you guys i love these love doing these thoughts we always love having you on man what are you drinking today So I have already had my tall boy of that beer. I've moved on to a double IPA by Bearded Iris Brewing called Illusion, which is good, but it's no tripping animals. Okay. Bearded Iris. Yeah. Interesting. You got some some wild brewery names. (laughs) They're out there. Yeah. If you had a brewery, what would you name it? Oh, this sounds very much like a question we would get on a live zone of truth that I'm not prepared for. (laughs) And I'm also not prepared for it now. Like, do you go traditional? Do you go out there? Hmm. What I've noticed about, you know, Chris mentioned the tripping animals, like that has kind of informed their design decision for all of their cans and all of that. You know, it's kind of yeah. like a theme more so than just a name. Mm-hmm. Off the top, without thinking too far into this, I would be a specialist brewery focusing on rye. I'd be rye rye, like W-R-Y rye. Oh boy. So, rye rye. And then uh, every can I think would just be someone like looking into the camera with the beverage and just smiling awkwardly or like Riley. I think that would be what I do. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Much more clever than what I was going to say. Rye rye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was also going to do a rye thing, but it was all rye bread uh, mm. themed. Well, rye is all rye bread themed. Yeah. I don't think there's a lot of overlap there. You could, we could <laughs> be fine. No, no, no. I'd probably do. I don't know. Maybe I'd lean into some of the the branding that I've done on myself in this show, like a Team Slurp Brewery or a Bad Boy Brewing or something like bad that. Boy brewing, bad yeah. Boy is not too bad. Yeah, I might go with a, that direction. There's a um, a sandwich shop down the street from where Chris and I live mm-hmm. that is called Feed Me Sandwich Kings. Hmm. 
And I mm. think you could I think you could alter that to be <laughs> slurp me. <laughs> Sl- slurp me. <laughs> Brewery Kings. <laughs> Love it. That's so good. How about you? Did you have an answer for that question? Uh I always thought that if I had a brewery in a marijuana legal state, mm-hmm. I would name it something like Suds and Buds. Oh, sure. Um and you'd kind of like do the crossover art like you have like a brew and like a strain that you you kind of like pair mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah would you maybe do something that was a play on banging buds which was the working title for banger battle before we settled on banger battle banging buds yeah i mean yeah that'd be the energy mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> we'd have to partner with bang energy but i think that's a given of yeah, course banging buds would be just like the energy and weed side and then the <laughs> the suds your buds would be, <laughs> yeah. would be the beer and energy it's what the fans are going to be asking for now. Yeah. Yeah. That's not a Patreon tier that's coming anytime soon. <laughs> what? Bang your butts? Yep. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about some of this stuff we've been into lately. Chris, you are our guest today. What have you been into lately, man? Oh, yeah. So I am coming off of playing a whole bunch of Monster Sanctuary, which is a, a Metroidvania indie side-scrolling like mm-hmm. monster collector game. Nice just fantastic i the one of the things i really like about playing pokemon is like the whole team building aspect of that and like that game hits that sweet spot really well there so playing that uh, i just finished up the star trek strange new worlds show which is fantastic highly recommend that it's i'm not a trekkie or anything but that really feels like they, they've got a a really good quality reboot in that show and then uh better call Saul when new episodes drop i'm catching those hell yeah That's my big stuff I can't speak to Monster Sanctuary because I'm not familiar with it, but I've heard really, really good things about Strange New Worlds. You got me interested in being like a Star Wars dude. That's kind of saying a lot. I I don't know when I'll be able to try it, but I certainly will. And I really do want to get into Better Call Saul. Everybody I've heard talk about that show is just raving about it constantly. Yeah, it's that damned Vince Gilligan and his tricks he's up to again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Tricksy Gilligan. Yeah. All right, Griff, how about you? Two movies I saw recently that I highly recommend. The first is The Sea Beast. It's the new animated movie on Netflix. It's similar to a Pixar-style movie. Mm -hmm. The lead character is the same actor as Billy Butcher, Carl Urban. Oh, nice. Uh, He's the lead, I guess, sea monster hunter. And the whole thing is kind of a mashup of like a how to train your dragon-esque thing where like the sea monsters aren't really bad but like the world building is really good and the different types of monsters they show are really interesting and cool and geez after watching it i just like i had so many ideas for like it, it, it's very it's very like D campaign-esque sure what they, what they do i had so many ideas for a pirate campaign uh <laughs> listening to that because they have different codes like of the hunters like they're kind of pirates but they're sea monster hunters and like the crown is like paying them to hunt down these monsters it's very interesting and then i saw for the first time this movie is like seven years old but disney pixar's inside out oh sure which is the movie that features like the emotions Mm -hmm. like it's all it's all the emotions and it's like inside the brain and outside the brain and what's going on and um Wow, that was a lot heavier than I expected from like a Disney Pixar movie. I mean, you, you do expect that kind of in some of them. Like Up had some really kind of heavy scenes, but it was like 
oh, this is all about emotions. So we're going to kind of make this very emotional. Sure. Yeah. I formed that same core memory like a month or two back. It's for the first time seeing that. It's uh, very heavy, very impactful. Yeah. Yeah. Highly recommend that one. I generally watch Pixar movies when they come out. I'm a really big fan, but I hadn't seen that one. And it it definitely holds up to all the other Pixar movies. It's very good. Sure. That rocks. As for me, there's really one thing that's been dominating my life this past week. I have never tried the Far Cry series of games. Never had. And I'm a type of dude that when I play a game, I do like a first person shooter quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Call of Duty, Halo, Bioshock. Let me add it. Like this is all stuff that I really, really enjoy. But I never really tried Far Cry. And when I saw the fifth one came out on Game Pass, I was like, you know what? I'll give it a shot because I know they're somewhat episodic. You don't have to play them in order or anything. So I was just going to jump right in. I was hooked immediately. The cold open of the game. So let me back up just a second. Far Cry does this thing where each game is, like I said, episodic and it takes place in a different exotic locale. So on a, you know, a tropical island or in the desert or in the jungle or what have you. And this one takes place in backwoods, Montana. And so basically this cold open, you're flying in a helicopter and there's some conversations that are happening. You're in there with a U.S. Marshal. You're in there with a sheriff and you're a deputy and you're learning that you have a warrant and you're flying in to land by this like Heaven's Gate or Waco type cult complex to go arrest their leader. And the helicopter lands and you get out. And as you're walking in to arrest this guy, it's just this mounting dread of you realizing how fucked you actually are. Like you're starting to hear things like the the conversation between the marshal and the sheriff and the way that they interact with folks and the way that people are eyeing you and you start seeing like flashes of heavy weaponry and all of this stuff. You realize you're in a really bad situation because you're far away from society. And like, then the whole thing blows up and it goes nuts. The cold open is like 15 minutes of some of the most like tense video game cinematics I've ever been a part of. So cool. And then the rest of it is this awesome open world, like FPS crossed over with like, adventure sports almost so you're like flying around in like these like these pine tree forests on like an atv throwing grenades at pickup trucks and stuff and it's truly if you like drove into a national park here in the u.s and there was like a war happening between like doomsday preppers that like have like been hoarding like guns and ammo and stuff is like the good guys fighting back versus like this doomsday cult. They just like book of revelations type of like Christian, like craziness cult people fucking rocks. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. The far cry games are basically like a ramped up action movie that you're actually playing. Yes. That's, that's like, they're the expendables of, of action video games. <laughs> yeah. I'm basically running around and I have a dude in a seaplane following me around, like dropping bombs on my enemies while a pet cougar runs around tackling bad guys. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Some of the survival elements in those two are crazy. I remember mm -hmm. the one, the one where you're like on an island or like a tropical island sure. or whatever, like very often you would have to fight 
like sharks and jaguars and shit on oh, top yeah. of like the bad guys. Fighting bears and getting sprayed by skunks, wolverines yeah. and shit. It's crazy. It's a good time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, really, really heavily check that out because, or heavily recommend that to folks because it's a blast. And so much so that I saw Far Cry 6 was on sale, probably because 5 just dropped and they're trying to capitalize on suckers like me. And guess what? It worked. Like, I bought 6 already. I'm ready to go as soon as I'm done with 5. <laughs> Oh boy, so much fun, but let's move it along here. Let's get into the actual meat of this episode. What we're talking today is a couple different things. We brought Chris on because we've been having a lot of fun lately playing Malevolence and really getting into 2E in general. Chris, you've really dived into the 2E system. You're running Malevolence, you're GMing all sorts of 2E stuff, and we just wanted to pick your brain about both topics. So I know Griff and I have some questions for you. Griff, I know you have a perspective on a lot of this stuff, GMing a whole lot of 2E yourself. So if you'd like to jump in at any time, obviously you're welcome. And I also reached out to our folks on the Discord who had a lot of questions about malevolence and GMing 2E as well. So it's going to be a little bit of everything. Sound good, Chris? Sounds wonderful. Okay. So for this first part of the discussion, we're talking malevolence. I want us to try and keep this pretty spoiler light because obviously a lot of folks who are listening right now may not have checked the show out or um, aren't caught up. So if, you know, anything crazy has happened or anything super specific, let's leave that off the table. Let's just talk about the adventure in general and some of the stuff that's going on. So let's start with a quick reminder for the folks at home. Chris, can you do me a favor and summarize the adventure hook and the structure of the campaign? So... Is it rails versus sandbox, exploration versus dungeon crawl? What is Malevolence? Yeah, so Malevolence is adventure for third level characters that goes, I think, up to sixth level. And the whole hook there is that either someone in your party has inherited the right to a manor that's kind of on the west coast of Cheliac's Ravenel specifically, but like the kind of one of the regions west of Cheliax, either someone in your party has inherited that title or the person who has inherited contacts the party to get them to try to go investigate it. It is this abandoned mansion, a good 70, 90 miles away from anything else in the area in this old cove that has been abandoned under mysterious circumstances about 60 or so years ago. So it is definitely like a haunted house type adventure there's a whole lot of focus of investigation and exploration of the manor grounds the whole adventure basically takes place in the house and it it also uses the the research subsystem which is is kind of cool those are the kind of the big overall elements of it okay and then to the point of the question do you feel that this is a very railroady adventure path is it more focused on exploration where, where are we there? Yeah, investigation, exploration are two big qualities. It's definitely more of a sandbox adventure because mm-hmm. the party has their choice of how they tackle and explore the house itself, where they go, what they do, how they spend their time day to day. Yeah. Nice. It's interesting to me because, yes, it is in a very small location. It's literally one building, or at least we've seen so far. But it's a big building, so it can have some very sandboxy elements. You mentioned that the adventure hook could potentially be that somebody in our party 
inherited yeah, the what manor. The fuck, Chris? Um, I want to inherit the manor. We we didn't do that. Uh, Griff, you want to describe how how we're all involved? Yeah, I can describe how we're involved. I think I want to actually go back sure. to what we as a group kind of envisioned going into this and how like we're not exactly that now but we had kind of envisioned because Haley and I have experience in buying a house what goes into that like home buying or home inspection process Mm -hmm. and what kind of people and what kind of expertise you need so we had uh, you as like the exterminator there to exterminate any, any bugs, varmints. varmints. Yeah, we had Emily is kind of like the appraiser cataloging the entire thing and putting a value to it. We had Haley as kind of the structural engineer and she is an inventor, so that works really well. But demolition has quickly <laughs> has quickly moved to the forefront. And then we have my character who was kind of the big brain, which wouldn't necessarily be a thing that you would need in a home inspection but is kind of like a okay i'm going to catalog all the knowledge we have here and do the research that we need to do while we're here uh, mm-hmm. to put together what happened etc so he's i wouldn't say he's like an investigator by any means because that's kind of emily's role but he's more of a knowledge sponge or maybe like a arcane and occult expert mm-hmm. which makes sense in this fantasy setting, if you were to put together a team of folks to appraise a house like this, because one of the parts of the adventure hook was that, hey, we know there was maybe research or a large catalog or library of information there. What's going on with that? It does make sense in this context. And so we're brought together yeah. by the descendants of the Zarwin family to do this. So all of our parts to play make sense if you're someone trying to put together a team to go out and do this. So the way that we approached Malevolence made sense to kind of not have one of us be the inheritor, but us or be like a crack team of house hunters. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right, Chris. At time of recording, how far are we? Yeah, I was thinking about this a little bit. I would say you guys are a little less than halfway through Okay. most of the house. I think at the time of recording, we've covered almost two floors entirely here mm-hmm. uh, of the house. So there's definitely more to go. But yeah, I'd say I'd say roughly about halfway through, which is I didn't really have like an expectation of how long it would take you guys to kind of clear this out because I think parties handle this type of exploration at their own pace. But uh, I think you guys are maybe beyond a little bit where I thought you'd be by whatever day it is in the actual adventure. I think it's very interesting because this book is just slightly longer than a one book of an adventure path. Mm-hmm. And I think our party, like we vary pretty, <laughs> pretty heavily between shows and between books in general, anywhere from like high twenties to usually around like a 30 episode thing. But I mean, we've had books in Carrying Crown that have gone 50 episodes. We've had much shorter than, I mean, we've we've done 32-page adventures in 11. Yeah. So I kind of felt like we might be close to halfway through here. All right. So, Chris, my next question, given the adventure premise and structure, have you had any challenges with the adventure being so self-contained as the, it's in one building, a quote-unquote big old haunted house? Were you concerned by the lack of friendly NPCs, opportunities to shop, leave the manor, 
etc. for the players. And if you did have those concerns, and maybe you didn't, because they were built into the story or what have you, how did you mitigate those? Yeah, I think, so it is definitely an adventure that takes place in a kind of a remote location, which has some challenges on the party side. I'm mm-hmm. fine running oh, a yeah, right. of running adventure sure. where you guys get stretched out on supplies and whatever. But yeah, on the party side, it can be a little daunting being so far away from like the quote unquote town where you can shop and, and, and get stuff. So I think the, I think opportunities to shop is the biggest part there. And I think I see you guys like choosing, you've, you've chosen a couple archetypes that have these daily supplies that replenish with, which I think helps out a little bit with that. But any adventure designed this way is going to supply enough loot in different areas to kind of uh, overcome that. I, it is a horror adventure, though, so being a little lower on the gear end makes sense with kind of how they've balanced all of this. But I was a little worried about not being able to shop anywhere in this adventure for you guys, so I did. I put in a little extra. I tweaked it a little bit. The original adventure had you guys traveling however many dozens hundreds of miles to this place by cart oh god oh which was crazy because it's on a cove by the ocean and like in that setting you would much rather sail somewhere versus take a cart so i had the npc kind of hiring you guys to do this work who also happens to run a a shipping company in Cantargo. have you guys piggyback on a a regular supply run mm-hmm. one, of, one of their boats uh, to the cove and that boat's going to return in I think what I said seven days maybe yeah. so who knows what sort of supplies they've loaded up and provisioned with when they return if you guys even need the seven days to begin with I didn't really know how quickly you guys would move through the adventure so seven days would like okay if they're really struggling at this point there could be a chance to supply with gear and stuff mm-hmm. via that kind of device sure you know what I think is very interesting in this adventure? I mean, honestly, how many friendly NPCs have we met? Like one, one, maybe. But quality over quantity. But I think my I think, favorite NPC. I think what Chris has been doing a very killer job with is it. It feels very much like the house is like the most interesting NPC we've interacted with, mm-hmm. and it's like this house is so fleshed out and nuanced. And we interact with it a lot like you would with an NPC. Yeah. And so it like feels like the house is this like character. And there's so many facets to this house's personality, both good and terrifying, that it really does feel like every day we go into a new area or whatever, we're learning a lot, but we're like, we're kind of interacting with an NPC in that way. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. It's a little bit of the cliche of like the city of New York is a character in Friends or Sex in the City right. or whatever. But it certainly holds true here in that the setting itself has a lot of rich character to provide. And there are a lot of NPCs that exists in the research that we're doing and the journals and haunts and portraits and all sorts of stuff that like sometimes we have an opportunity to interact directly or indirectly with those folks, but we're learning about them. So it feels like there's a lot more characters in this world than there actually are. Yeah. It's kind of cool. So Chris, my next question is this adventure was one that I think you brought, if I remember correctly to the linked legacy cast. Hey, I'm interested in running this. Do you guys want to play this as season four of link legacy? If I'm correct in that assumption, what stood out to you? Why did you pick Malevolence? 
Well, I think this was more of a, a discussion with us together, all saying like, hey, not only is this something that I'd be interested in running, but mm-hmm. people seemed interested in playing it too as well. Yep. And I think when we first heard Malevolence get announced, I think I remember the feeling being like, oh, this is kind of <laughs> right in the wheelhouse for you know what the group has kind of been doing uh, up to this point. So the thematic kind of parallels to like Carrying Crown and just horror adventures in general I th- was a big draw. When I was looking into the adventure, some of the, the research subsystems, the fact that this was like a type of horror that gets touched on in, in Carrying Crown 2, I think really helped bring that same kind of, I don't know, that same, I, it gave me a lot of touch points and references to kind of bring into this campaign. It does feel a little bit like a sister show to Carrying Crown. Like it, it certainly different system, much further in the future, part of the linked legacy line of shows, but like it definitely has a lot of similar like vibes to it. You know what I think is absolutely hilarious? And it was obviously not intentional because I ran book four at this point over a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. But like I made an intentional choice to flip and sub in the Dominion of the Black. And now that has so many ties to this adventure that it makes it feel really robustly mm-hmm. like connected. Uh, and it is very connected, but it's it's like now the connections feel really strong. And that was like, that's something that's not there for anyone else's version of Wake of the Watcher to connect to this. That's not there. This yeah. also takes place in a little corner of the Galarian world that we keep coming back or referencing the city of Ire is in Ravenul, and we go there in one of the evil interludes. Just off the coast of Ire is where No Response from Deepmar takes place, which I tied into that kind of as well. So it, it is like a little corner of the world that exists as like almost like a little colony or so from like our Ustalov story. Little HLP colony. Yeah. <laughs> Another thing that when I was reading through the adventure that really stuck out to me too, that I'm remembering now is like, this is a low level adventure, right? Like mm-hmm. level three characters are starting out this, you don't get that high level in it, but like, I think this is at the time of recording. This is kind of starting to take form, but the stakes in this adventure are much greater than what they would be for what you would think of like a book of an AP at this level, or even like some of the two APs I've been thinking about the stakes in this adventure sometimes seem higher than some of the full APs or three book APs in Tui, which I don't want to spoil too much, reveal too much, but it's 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 interesting how James Jacobs wrote this in a way that gives that it that much impact for a low level party. Awesome. Well, I think that's a good segue into the next topic of discussion here under Malevolence. So I think this may be a question more geared towards Griffin myself, although Chris, of course, you may have a perspective here. Has anything happened so far that's really surprised us? Right off the bat, what has surprised me is that this was pitched as like the haunted house adventure. And we certainly have had undead combatants and and haunts and that type of stuff. But I've been really pleasantly surprised by the variety of different creatures and adversaries that you come across and how they're all exist like coexisting in this house together. It's very interesting and it's not counter to what the premise is. It just kind of enhances it and makes it more interesting than just, oh, this is a house with a bunch of ghosts on it. Yeah, I think you can. Uh, I purposely made Cuthbert a academic and a librarian and that kind of thing so that I could act out these like mind blowers with him because you can hear it like 
when like the Ashen Man gets brought up and like and the Hunter in Darkness, like I as a GM of a ton of Galarian stuff, am like, oh fuck. And like I'm using Cuthbert to mm-hmm. be able to like kind of like also have a mind blower in that moment because it's like those are things that should not be in a level three adventure <laughs> that, like shocked that those are in there also sh- i mean shocked by some of the parallels that i wasn't expecting in like book four and i'm not going to spoil anything that has happened but like there are just some parallels that are like one for one that i was not expecting to be a thing the difficulty i think i was expecting and it, boy howdy has it delivered yeah, it's been fucking hard. Um, I think it's fun as hell. I think getting our asses beat in some of these combats has been really fun to see us try and work together as a non-optimized party to not die. Yeah, I don't say this on air, but I've said it several times as soon as we've wrapped up an episode, probably two or three times now. I feel like every time we get done, like I pass Chris walking out the room and I'm like, dude, that was my favorite episode of Weapons we've recorded. Like, I've really been enjoying this more and more and more and more as we go. And I was enjoying it from the start. So, like, I'm full in. One thing that has surprised me a bit, I know this is more of a question to you guys, but when I'm GMing this, I'm, I'm focused on making sure that I'm portraying the concrete physical things that you guys are interacting with encountering. But in the course of you guys exploring the house and coming across these different things, and I think this is more of a, uh, a tribute to the guy who wrote this adventure initially and the details he put in there, but with everything you guys are piecing together, even like just flavor text in a particular room here and there, you guys are putting your heads together and making really spot on deductions and dot connections about what has happened in this place that I wasn't expecting. It's one thing to kind of read through the module and read a room text and be like, okay, yeah, this makes sense there. But for you guys to be able to put that together yourselves, especially Haley, we talked about her being the conspiracy theorist. Yeah of this but the fact that like Haley will say something I was like oh god that's right on the money I don't mm-hmm. I'm not gonna I'm <laughs> don't make a face <laughs> setting my face to not give away anything but like each I think every single person has kind of had that moment and I hope I haven't let on to anything at all but I think you guys have each really hit the head of the nail on some of this stuff too yeah so the next thing that I wanted to talk about was doing a check in with theories and I think we're running a little bit behind time you know, we, we spend a little bit more time on this than I thought we might. So I don't want to spend really any time on there. But yeah, we're I'm glad that you brought that up, Chris, because everyone is trying to figure this out. And there have been some wild theories thrown out. Beauty and the Beast situation. The entire house is a mimic. All sorts of crazy stuff. And uh, I'm curious to see when this all wraps up. What was right? Yeah, honestly, I would rather keep the theories out of this zone of truth because like you got to listen to Linked Legacy and listen yeah. to us like come up with these theories in real time because it's really fucking I, I bet if you are a GM of this adventure, that has got to be like the most fun show that we do to listen to because Probably. because we're all just like oh my god oh my god oh my god what is this what is this hey do you think this is that do you think that is this uh, and and having that knowledge of the adventure like chris does and like if you're gming it like you would it's just got to be fun to hear all it's that. so much fun yeah absolutely good all right so a couple quick questions for you chris and then we're going to move into questions from listeners about malevolence for you So we've talked about maybe being close to halfway done with the module. Do you have any teases for the back half of the adventure? Anything to get excited for? 
And if the answer is no, because you want every single thing to be a surprise, that's totally valid. I do want things to be a surprise. And I walked into this saying, you know, maybe nothing, maybe mm-hmm. I won't give anything away. But from our conversation in this episode, we talk about some of the tie-ins to other stuff that we've done. I don't think we've hit the strongest of those tie-ins yet. Ooh. Oh, that's Uh-oh. a good tease. <laughs> I think there are more to come without saying anything else. And I'm so excited for when those actually do come up to get the reactions at the table. When you guys know what is about to happen, I think that's going to be a really high point for me. That is the best answer you could have had for me in this moment. (laughs) Now I'm like way jacked up about it. My last question for you, if folks haven't tuned into this show yet, why should they? I think it's the characters. I mean, I set up the adventure. I I try to make it immersive and I, I try to make sure that people feel like they're actually in the house doing stuff. And it's the characters in those interactions doing things that I think really make it for me. Everyone's playing fantastic characters. We got you two playing the fresh Secrets of Magic classes in this. So if you want to hear a magus, you want to hear a summoner take on this type of horror adventure, this is the show to listen to for this. I mean, it's a James Jacobs adventure. It's well-written. There's so much detail in there for GMs to pull from. And I think just the... The slow drip of reveals throughout this really well thought out story about all the events that have happened here, it makes for very compelling radio. Good. All right. Well, the listeners that are on our Discord had a whole bunch of questions for you, Chris. So we're going to lightning round through these and then we're going to move into our larger discussion about GMing for 2E. So first and foremost, Jason asks, what's stressful about prepping one volume adventure material? What's fun? I didn't have anything specific to the length on this. I think for me, starting an adventure is the most stressful part because you're getting people into the adventure. You're you're setting up those hooks and making sure that people, if you're playing with people who want to play the adventure, it's not as stressful. But I think making sure that they're hooked into what's happening is important. And sometimes making sure that happens can be a little, you get a little pressure to do that. Mid-adventure in something like this, some of the sandbox elements occasionally I worry just a little about when I'm going into something where you could take like three or four or five different directions and I've got to make sure that I'm prepped for each one of those. That uncertainty can be a little stressful at times, but I haven't noticed it too much in this. I honestly think this is the most sandboxy thing we as HLP have done. I think it is. I'm trying to think... I mean, I guess the only thing that was a similar scale would have been like Harrowstone Prison. Mm-hmm. But even that didn't really, I mean, it's not like you were researching in there. You did all your research outside and that was clearly like, oh, okay, you're going to do this and then you're going to go in there. I think there were parts of book one of Curse of the Crimson Throne that feel very sandboxy. Probably not so much as this. So in that, I agree with you. I think that's, I think that's my runner up. Harrowstone being up there as well because in book one of Curse it felt like there were a billion plot threads to follow up on yeah I just feel like this this is is more like trying to discover things this one is so much like hey you're a GM your players walk up to this mansion there are five different entrances yes they could go into an entrance and immediately go upstairs I think my curse curse comparison, like that is more like your objective is explore the house. The curse thing is like if you're booting up a video game and have 20 optional quests open. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I I see that. It's like, it's more of a, this one quest is requires you to go in a million different directions versus 
You have 10 side quests. Yeah. Yes. And it definitely requires a bunch of front-end prep from the GM, but I think it's great to do because what I love about this adventure and some of the other 2E material pies that was put out is these types of mechanics and setups transfer the agency to the players to do their thing. Mm. And I think that's important in an adventure for the players to be calling the shots and feeling like it is an open world that they could go anywhere they really wanted to. Yeah. It's not really an elusive choice. It is an actual choice, <laughs> choices that they can make in there. It, yeah. Sure. All right. Next question. Smiggle asks, how many bird points has the malevolence big bad collected? Oh, yeah. Very funny. Very <laughs> funny. Uh, more than you would imagine. I know initially when we first hit the house, there was a whole event there that, you know, you could surmise maybe some some bird related activities there. But uh, there's more birds in store. Well, what can I say? More birds in store. Uh, oh, God. Forget the prior thing. Ooh, That's boy. the most compelling part of the continuing what? <laughs> What's More <good>? birds. <laughs> All right, we got a listener, Alex, the Mad Poet. What do you think the property value of the Malevolence House is? Like, aside from all the haunts and shit, it's a decent square footage. So yeah, I uh, spent a little bit of pre-work looking into this question. Like, 3.5 has this whole, like, guide for prices on different uh, size of house. A mansion in that guide is 100,000 gold and... Like, 2E is about half of, like, the 1E Pathfinder value, so I kind of want to say about 10,000 gold, but at the same time, this is so far out of the way, even when it was, like, a, you know, its own village, it's so far out of the way from any, like, big area that you'd have to ship in all those materials, and I feel like that is expensive in and of itself, too. So, who knows? Maybe more. Do you think more or less now that it's, like, decrepit and, you know? It, oh, is yeah. It, is it like 10,000 gold for a, like a new functioning mansion like when it opened maybe in this case maybe that breaks even between the distance and the because you're gonna have to pay to like repair it but it's probably cheaper yeah uh 60 years of <laughs> neglect is definitely gonna yeah it's hurt your a property value real yeah. fixer upper you know <laughs> fixer upper that's a that's a good way to put it Alex continues. He's got another question. This is a larger question for us. Alex the Mad Poet asks, what's next for Link Legacy? Another multi-level adventure, 2E, 2E conversion. And I added this question in here because we're having a lot of discussions about what it's going to look like next, what season five looks like or, or what we're doing. Nothing set in stone. We haven't figured it out, but we have been having some really good conversations behind the screens. And no matter what, it's going to be good because Malevolence is setting a really high bar and we're going to have to clear it. Yeah. We'll figure it out. I think what I am willing to disclose at this point is we're interested in doing something that is multi-level. Mm -hmm. We're interested in doing something that is more long form. I think Malevolence has showed us that doing a multiple level adventure gives us a lot more play with the characters that we bring in and gives us a lot more staying power for those characters. That's not to say that we're going to stop doing goofy shit because uh, <laughs> we love doing goofy shit too. But I mean, there might be room for both. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about GMing for Tui. So, Chris, you've GM for Tui, correct? Uh, <laughs> let me think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good answer. What do you got going on besides malevolence that's in Tui right now? I am also running a group through Ruby Phoenix, which is the three book 11 to 20 AP set in Tian Jaw. That's been a lot of fun too. Hell yeah. Those are, these are my two, two EG games that I'm GMing right now. My, my only games that I'm GMing. All right. 
And how would you describe your GM style for those of you who haven't listened to Malevolence yet and don't know what Chris sounds like when he's in the command chair? Well, the first episode is free on the Bestow Curse feed if you want to check that yeah. out. You guys can go there, but I don't know how people classify different GM styles. Like, I had trouble thinking about this question. I think maybe just like the things I think important about games is a good answer to this. Like, the biggest thing for me is creating like immersion and buy in when mm -hmm. running games. Like, no matter what I do, I always want to make sure the characters are brought in, that the world is immersive. So I don't get to, I don't do a lot of like fourth wall breaking and stuff unless we crack a joke to, to laugh about something or there. But I want to make sure that people like feel they're actually playing in the world that we're running. But I think most GMs do that anyway so i don't i don't know if that's a, really a different style from other people yeah i would say if i was describing your gm style you are a very lore forward gm mm -hmm. which is a very good thing for this adventure but i've run you through plenty of stuff i know you as a player you love lore yeah. and so the gm you kind of like let that exude through your excitement in running the game which is very fun and especially in a game like malevolence where there's so much interesting lore because you can tell when you're running the game how excited you are about the lore that you're like dropping on us in those moments. But I think, at least in my experience with you running a game for us, it's very much like you love dropping the right bits of lore at the right time. Uh, and I think that's like part of how you create immersion. I think every GM creates immersion in kind of their own way. I think that's one of your bigger strengths when you create immersion is, is like actually like letting things unfold in the way they naturally would, mm -hmm. which for malevolence and the research system and everything has been like crazy cool to like be a player for. That's a, that's a big compliment for me. I appreciate that's yeah. I think what I'd also like to add to that, I think a lot of the people who have listened to our shows have fallen in love with your character of Chris of like, having fun and being a goofy dude and like you are definitely good for a joke but what i was surprised by and impressed with is how well you handle and deliver gming for horror you do a really good job just like griff of really being able to creep us out and doing a really good job of a of setting the setting so Maybe your fists of the Ruby Phoenix is not horror focused, <laughs> but you're very good at doing horror when you have to. You know, I think I think that's not just me or Chris. I think that's we really have a good table for horror. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't ever say that enough. Our group of friends is very good at kind of letting the moment take them when we're playing something. Mm -hmm. And so you get a lot of like it really allows us to as GMs like ramp that tension up to a really high level and then pull back and it lets everybody like sigh of relief, crack a joke, and then we can do it again. Yep. And like you get to do it in spurts that then like keep ramping higher and higher. That's why people like listening to our horror stuff. It's like, yes, we're good horror GMs, but like the table is a really good horror table to play at. 100%. Yeah, that, that describes us perfectly. Rock and roll. All right. Well, now that we're done patting ourselves on the back, um, <laughs> how do you approach your prep work for 2E? What's the method to your madness, bud? Yeah. So the biggest boon for me in 2E is being able to use Foundry for it. I run all my games in Foundry. So you guys don't see it on the maps that we're playing in, but essentially the prep for I did for Malevolence specifically, and to some extent Ruby Phoenix 2, is I took 
all of the notes in the book and I made journal entries for each room that had all of the relevant details in there. So there's none of me flipping through book trying to find the room that you guys moved to because it's not in like they're in a weird numbered order that doesn't match up to the actual exploration paths. Ooh, that's good, especially for how sandboxy this adventure yes. is. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're if I know you're moving to the next room, I have all that information right there on the map to look at and reference. We may not go one A, one B, one C. We might go one G, then one A, then one E. Yeah. Yeah. So in the prep work, I'm also kind of prepared like that's me in Foundry setting things up, but also memorizing the material and stuff after I've read through the book beforehand first before I start doing any work, just to make sure that I understand the, the whole story. But that, Sure. Yeah. All right. Do you have any experience GMing first edition? I only have like a one shot I ran for you guys back when I think that was mm-hmm. the first thing that I ever ran just to like get a taste of running it. I think because of how easy 2E is to GM, I'm probably going to be doing that permanently. I don't see myself running a bunch of 1E stuff that often because, I mean, it's just, it's it's tougher, right? 2E just yeah. makes it so much streamlined and easier. Yeah, it's like, it's honestly a breath of fresh air as a, as a very frequent 1E GM. It's, it's so much easier to run 2E. And so that was kind of my follow-up question. I, I wanted to ask you about like a little bit compare contrast between 1E and 2E and it's maybe better suited towards Griff to answer this question then like talk about the difference between preparing something for 1E versus preparing something for 2E like what does that look like I'll be honest when I prepare something for 2E the stat blocks are so easy to read and so easy to maneuver I almost can just look at it once and have it sure in 1E unless I'm running something out of Hero Lab where I have like a hover for everything It's like an insane amount of bookkeeping just to get the feats right and just to get how everything stacks correctly. Everything is built like a player character in 1E. And so if you think about creating a character, any custom encounter I've ever done for you guys, I've put the same amount of work into as you do when you create a full character. Which, for those of you who haven't, is usually several hours. That's crazy. Like hours of work. And there are templates and stuff that speed that up, but... When I really want to do something that's like a PC to PC challenge, when I want to build an Ed Turner, I'm building a fucking Ed Turner from the ground up, mm-hmm. right? And in 2E, you just don't have to do that. It's not part of the monster building process. There's very set like, hey, if it's this level, what do you want it to be good at? Okay, those bump up. What do you want it to be bad at? Okay, those bump down. Okay, you can you can set like a stat block. You could just give it abilities off of different classes and stuff. It's very intuitive and takes a tenth of the time so and encounters are fun and engaging and well balanced (laughs) still (laughs) with that without all of that extra that's going even further than like everything else which there's so much of a glut of loot and everything in 1e that it becomes kind of daunting to do treasure or to convert treasure from 1e to 2e and in 2e now that I say this now, and then Treasure Vault's going to come out. Uh, <laughs> but in 2E, it's it's a lot simpler to look at it and say like, okay, I don't have to go big six items for my party to care about it. So like, I can add a bunch of cool consumables and I can do all this stuff. And that all feels good getting it as a player where it doesn't really feel good in 1E because you're not getting like permanent stackable bonuses. Yeah, I do definitely agree with that. 
it's tough because I love one so much. It is I do a, love it's one a, It's a genuinely great game, but with the decade plus of bloat and obscure shit from a 16 page supplement that came out 16 years ago. And like, it, there's so much out there and you're, you're right. The stat block. I mean, even when I was running Dietmar eighth level, like still looking at at those stat blocks was super intimidating. Paragraph of feet names for yeah, each. Yeah, yeah. Paragraph of feet names. Great. Like now great. I need to read and research all of them. And what'll probably end up happening is one of your characters will do something succeed against my monster the encounter will end and then i'll be like fuck i had a feat that specifically fought that but i didn't mm-hmm. understand the 20 feats perfectly yeah. so yeah, you know. I, I find myself forgetting those cool things a lot less because the cool things are very apparent and yeah TV, and you get to use them all the time and in one e you prepare yourself for 30 cool things you have and you get to use five and it feels shittier <laughs> mm-hmm Going back to the whole sandbox comment, it feels like maybe like a one stat block is more sandboxy <laughs> uh, in, in of itself because you have so many different like cloistered like niche options to choose from. Mm-hmm. And the one or two that come up in an encounter, it could be any of like a, several dozen, you know, yeah, and there's a lot more feet trees and that kind of stuff that yeah. you just have to, you know, oh, fuck, if I want this, I got to build these three things into it. And yeah, mm-hmm. here I am. Kudos for doing that through a whole AP for a. Uh, Honestly, if I didn't have Hero Lab, it would be a lot more daunting. I will yeah. say, I will say, like for wanting you especially, Hero Lab's like a pretty necessary. necessary tool. Yeah, at this yeah. point, we could just say it. It's I, necessary. Like, <laughs> I, you know, for for all the flack we give it in certain areas and whatever, it makes it doable. All right, and I actually think that's a pretty fantastic segue into our next question. So, when you are prepping for GMing, what tools do you use? Do you have any handy programs or references for folks about to start GMing their own games? Yeah, for 2E specifically, and it, it works for 1E too, but the biggest recommendation I can have is use Foundry. Like, the switch from Roll20 to Foundry was so huge, and to have your own little instance of Foundry that you can prep stuff in and players can access while you're not on to look at their stuff and, and, and review is so helpful it is such a good tool for running games especially in the the dark dark times we're in where people can't always meet in person nowadays i mean shit it works well like get yourself a cheap ass table and just do your maps digitally it works just as well that way i mean we played the first six episodes of uh of malevolence on a table Mm -hmm. and it worked just fine you had all your stuff in foundry but we just had a, you know, me as a player connect to the TV and it, I, I mean, it was flawless. So I would do that if you're in person. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly can't speak to the GM aspect of it, but, you know, I love having like working windows and doors and seeing auras and that kind of stuff. It does that very, very well. Dynamic lighting, all that kind of stuff makes you feel like you're actually on the map and at first the switch was a little frustrating in that before I could just see the big old like PDF map that we put out on the table and I knew where everything was at every given time and now I've had lots of situations like in Bestow Curse when we're going through catacombs or malevolence where we're in really tightly packed rooms where my character can't see around that corner or can't see through that window or an encounter happens in another room and I don't know what's going on but then I think, wait a second, Steve, like stop fucking metagaming. Your character wouldn't know what's going on or wouldn't be able <laughs> to see that opponent. So can't really plan effectively. And you just need to play the character. 
So honestly, that kind of stuff really helps as a GM because there's a lot of times I remember playing with Tim and and playing, you know, in in HLP and and stuff when you're somewhere on a map and I have to make a call that's like, uh, yeah, you can see him. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, just look at your fucking screen. You either do or you don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's also fun too in game when like, let's say for the sake of the argument, we're playing malevolence and Haley runs into a room and sees a creature. And that creature is some like undead or otherworldly horror. And we hear her react and everyone's like, oh God, like what's going on in that room? Like, that's cool. I love that. Fear of the unseen at play. Yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. Absolutely. All right. So. These next couple questions I'm going to throw out to both of you. First one from Sir Newt. How do you organize your notes for GMing? Griff? I do OneNote. Um, mm-hmm. I really like OneNote. I do links in OneNote, and they work really well. Uh, so I'll, I'll usually have like an encounter page, which is all the encounters in a dungeon. And I'll have like the, the map page, and the map page has like every room, like the map with all the numbers on it, and every room's description text. And then when I click on that room, it takes me to the encounter that happens in that room, the stat block, and any treasure and development that happens. So by doing that, I kind of create a almost like a wiki. <laughs> it almost uh-huh. feels like a wiki where like everything's a blue link and I can click between things and then anything in that page that needs a like if I need a Nethys reference, like if it's a magic item, I like to just link the Nethys reference so that I can pop over to Nethys and read you guys verbatim like what the magic item is when you get it. Um, I obviously don't do as much Foundry stuff as Chris does, so I don't really know how the journals in that work, but I'm sure they work pretty similarly. I think the biggest GM thing to take away from whatever we talk about in our notes is like, you got to get the maps and like the descriptions in a way that like you can have it all. And the way that the books operate, it just doesn't work well. Uh, your your map is six pages ahead of the description of half of the rooms, and so that's kind of difficult. Aside from notes, like I'll I put like room number and what the encounter name is in all of my Hero Lab portfolios. So I make like a portfolio for each encounter, and then um, I just make a note and a new portfolio if I've like merged an encounter, which sometimes happens if you guys like do a rolling encounter into another room. So what I, what you can do in Hero Lab is import a portfolio into another portfolio. So I'll import the new rooms encounter into the old rooms encounter, and then I have a full encounter. So that's, that's helpful, because uh, I have every stat block then from both encounters in the same place. Chris? Yeah, that is super neat. I've already talked a little bit about how how I organize stuff in Foundry. No need to rehash that, but absolutely agree with Griff that whatever method you use to break out of the format that it's in in the book is going to be invaluable to you when you're when you're running stuff. I do use OneNote, though I'm not advanced at it and all. I just use like the different pages for stuff, and I mostly use it for research in Malevolence. One thing that I think is probably the the biggest kind of personal enhancements I've made on the adventure is interpolating stuff between the different research bits in Malevolence. The book, as is, only gives you information when you hit a threshold, and thresholds could be three or four research checks apart from the last one. 
And so I've, I've spent a lot of time kind of writing my own descriptions of not only the spoon-fed facts that they have in the stat block of the research topic, because I think it's important for players to make inferences off of the information they get from a research check, not that you're just like, oh, this is what you know now, this is what you know. Mm-hmm. It feels better to me when players can put two and two together on their own, even if it's a pretty clear inference to make. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of descriptions of not only the the thresholds across, but some of the in-between points is a factor two that will lead up to the next threshold for people to put together. Well, yeah, and then it feels a lot less like a mini game and much more like you're actually researching. Yeah. Oh, cool, I got a research point. Yeah. Feels a lot lamer than like, oh, you know this one esoteric fact and you're so close to putting like the pieces of the puzzle together. Then I'm on board. Yeah, I hate to have the mechanics of it be the only thing you get out of it. I love to like make sure that there's flavor in interacting with whatever topic it is. Again, great segue to the next question. Alex the Mad Poet, what are your thoughts on research in 1E versus 2E? Better? Worse? You know, I like both. Me too. Yeah. I hate how it was originally in 1E, which was very much a roll this skill you hit this DC, you get this information. If you don't, you don't. Mm-hmm. But then the research system evolved in Ultimate Intrigue, and that's the library where... combat, Yeah, right? that's where yeah. the library yeah. combat happens, and that's actually really fun, because it, it gives you, like, different damage dice based off of, like, what, like, how intelligent you are, so it, it makes some people that generally wouldn't roll well in combat feel, like, really strong against the research. That's what I was going to say that uh, I feel like I like more about the 1E system than 2E is it rewards people for specking into like intelligence. It rewards those types of characters. We did this in return and my witch was rolling D12s for stuff and I've never rolled D12s for stuff. (laughs) Which was the barbarian of research. And, and, And that's exactly what it was, Griffin. It was like for a couple sessions, I got to pretend to be a barbarian or roll like a barbarian and yet still do it in a way that I very much still felt like a high intelligence class. It was very, very cool. I loved it. Well, and like wherever you're doing research has like a hit point pool. Mm -hmm. And as you whittle that down, you get different bits of information. It's a very different take. It's a a completely different take to how 2E does it, which I, I think 2E still does it really well. I like the research points. I like research thresholds and that kind of thing. I think it fits really well with the kind of always on 2e mechanic of crit fail fail success crit success like that works really well because that's something that's kind of constant in 2e but you don't get to roll d12s to damage the library yeah yeah i feel like they they had to map it to the the four stages of success system and that part is okay in research i would love for some like way to kind of get that 1e the different damage dice in there the one thing i think 2e does add that's pretty cool is the venues of research and it works really well in malevolence because in 2e you can have a research topic broken out into different venues where a venue could be a notebook or another one could be i don't want to spoil anything for some of the the other interesting stuff but like diaries or other, these, these are the notes but the, <laughs> a psychopomp <laughs> yeah talking to someone could be a venue of research and they intersperse that in an area so that it works more levelance because you have to explore the the manner to to collect all these different venues to be able to research on them you get little nuggets of information that you can research all the information out of before moving on to the next one so that part of kind of 
breaking it out into different areas is cool for me. You know what I kind of find hard to reconcile is the crit failure condition. And I understand why it's there. Kind of makes sense when you think about research as a series of points. But like when you learn that big tidbit that you're supposed to learn in the research rules, you know, at three research points, you get this or whatever. It's kind of hard to like un-Pandora's box that. Like, yeah. It's like, yeah. Okay, that, well that's, that feels a lot gamier. How, how do we RP no longer knowing this information? Do we RP it like, well, maybe that was false until we get another research point and then we're like, oh, no, no, no. It, it's it just, it, it's a little difficult to me from a role-playing perspective to kind of reconcile that mechanic. Yeah, I imagine some like masters and PhD folks will like chime in with like, oh, like you know you've gone somewhere, but then you do this lit review with this other thing that conflicts what you've already read. Yeah, like, yeah. You're like, oh, which one of these is actually true? And it takes work to eke that out. But I still agree that taking a step back in progress from things you've already concretely determined it feels a little weird. It's hard to separate your metagame. I'll yeah, say that. Yeah. I'll say that like that that is a very difficult point for me personally to separate like what I now know as yeah. like I know I progressed three points and I got this information. I know that's true. And I have to pretend that's not true until I get three points again. Or in question. Yeah, yeah like yeah. question it. Um, which is just a little bit difficult for me to do. Yeah. It's a difficult thing to do in a game. I think both systems do this subsystem well. There's things both do well. There's things both could improve on. But like, hey, I don't know that this is a one versus the other. I right, do right, genuinely yeah. like both. Yeah, I like both. And honestly, w- what I say bad about that, I also like the fact that there's a consequence for failure mm-hmm. in the 2E version. Like, I, yeah. I like that you can research poorly. <laughs> I like that you don't send your barbarian to just roll. Yeah. And I don't want to spoil anything, but the adventure-specific mechanic for research is really fucking rad. Not to get into yeah. it, but, like, that extra ability to research that they give you in a very special circumstance feels really cool. Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about, and I do really like it. All right. Last question on 2EGMing. Caranthamum, best thing you've picked up from collaborating with other GMs? Yeah, so this is a really targeted question because I'm on another server mm-hmm. with all malevolence GMs where oh, someone's running fine. a game. We, we don't have to answer and, it. And, and, someone, and, and people are running a channel, a separate channel for only the GMs that are added to talk about different stuff. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is it has been very helpful to have a sounding board for other people who have run the game because I'll be honest, my first instincts about tweaking or changing something aren't always correct. And I think some of the conversations I've had with Griff while we're lifting in the garage about, oh, we haven't uh, started playing the adventure yet, but this mechanic I'm worried about that it's not going to translate well and getting a second opinion on that can be helpful. Uh, same thing with this GM channel. There are things like, ah, I don't really know. This like this one part where they find this out feels too on the nose. I feel like I want to tweak it and turn it out. But then I hear from other people that their party really enjoyed that or really liked it. And so having people to kind of moderate my first instincts that are turned out to be very incorrect in some cases is super helpful for me. Yeah, and I wouldn't even say incorrect. It's just how you would have like first pass run the game, which doesn't necessarily mean that it's like that people aren't having fun or that you're not running it well, but it does mean that the feedback you got 
potentially enhance what your first impression would have been. I would kind of say incorrect. I was totally about to take out that poem that we encountered oh, really? in yeah. the room <laughs> and replace it with something more cryptic before other people chimed in. But that turned out to be a really good part of that episode. And yeah, looking back, I would, I should not have ever tried to do anything with that. I left it in as is was the best choice. Yeah, you're right. That would have been a mistake. Yeah, that, 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 <laughs> yeah, probably would have been a misstep. Yeah, uh, I think for me, and I'll just kind of like talk about recent stuff because I picked up so much from other GMs over the years, and you know, and have been run in games by so many fantastic GMs. Have, I'm just friends with so many fantastic GMs. But one of my favorite things that I've picked up recently and started using in Bestow Curse, and that I think even Chris has been kind of pushing us towards in malevolence is I actually picked up from friend of the show, uh, Adam from Southern Tom Fleury, who, um, who really gives his players a lot of agency and heads up in like level ups yeah. in order to really like flesh those out through role play and with their characters. And it's just not something that I ever do in carrying crown and not something that I ever really did in stuff that I GM before. But I think has been one of my favorite parts of Bestow Curse has been like you guys explaining how you level up and explaining what happens and explaining like how the consequences of what we've gone through so far have influenced even your like feet choices and that kind of stuff. I think it's just like it's a little thing that adds so much that is often a part of the game that is just kind of like skipped over. So that's one of my favorite recent things. Absolutely. All right. Well, we are writing pretty tight on time. I've got a whole bunch of listener questions for us to wrap this up. I think we're just going to do a couple fun ones. So quickly, Sir Newt's asking us, which AP slash module would make the best Saturday morning cartoon? I think Iron Gods. Iron Um, Gods. I think Iron Gods is a great mix of fantasy barbarian, Conan stuff, aliens, cool flashy weapons a lot of visually impressive stuff in it so i think it would be really fun to do as a cartoon for my money i want to shout out an answer that i can't remember which user but somebody said on our discord that quest for the frozen flame would be a great one because it's in the land of the mammoth kings and you're a tribe of like people that ride mammoths through snowy tundras doing like cool kind of like primitive fantasy type stuff. I think that would be a really cool Saturday morning cartoon. But having read some of the stuff about Extinction Curse, I'll, I certainly will be uh, on, on the side of there are issues in like the may, maybe the uh, I don't know if I want to say like subsystems or what have you of that campaign. It's not a perfect campaign, but knowing where that goes and the enemies you end up facing that would be really fun. I like Extinction Curse a lot for a Saturday morning cartoon. Hell yeah. I would say, bias from experience, but I think Ruby Phoenix, uh, essentially the yeah. uh, the, oh, the, an- yeah. the anime style of a cartoon would be really good. Yeah, but that, that's the right answer. Chris. Also, I'm going to cold call Gatewalkers is going to be a really good uh, yes. Saturday morning cartoon. Yes. So? I think that's going to be yes. super episodic. It's going to have so much like... I feel like I just feel the crazy like planar like weird mm-hmm. energy coming yeah. in like an X Files type cartoon, which is what we've heard them describe it as. So those two are forefront in my mind when I think about that. Yeah, I want that adventure in my hands. Yeah, yeah. We obviously we're we're all really excited about that one. We're very excited. 
the hype that we got at PaizoCon has got me going. Yeah. A lot of people talking about it. Good things. All right. Last question for tonight. And I think this one's going to be a tough one. Yeah. Maybe it won't be, but it will be if someone disagrees with the correct opinion. Okay. This comes from Caranthemum. The eternal question. Toilet paper. Bangs or mullet? So I think what this question is asking is when you put a roll of toilet paper on the roller, does the paper come out and over towards the person using the toilet paper or go over and under like towards the wall? I think you should rename this question bangs or battle. Absolutely. <laughs> because bang is correct. <laughs> the, the only reason I've heard that I will accept for mullet is if you have a pet that plays with toilet paper, I've heard that like the mullet oh. is like somehow better for them to not like unravel it in a bad <laughs> way. And even that is kind of questionable to me. I don't really know. Chris, your thoughts? I hadn't thought there would be a justifiable reason for mullet that comes close, but bangs all the way. I don't think there is an arguable question anymore. I think science has settled this. Yeah, I think, didn't the patent for toilet paper settle it? I, think I thought so, there were yeah. diagrams in the patent for toilet paper that showed it going bangs. Yeah, so the U.S. government has, uh, has on file the way it should be, and I, I do agree with that. I want that paper as accessible to my dirty anus as possible. I think Mythbusters did an episode on this, and they found out that mullet, the mullet orientation, is a myth. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Myth. Myth. <laughs> Busted. You know, you know what's the worst orientation, though? Yep. Um, public bathroom side. Mm. Public bathroom side. So, like, you know, you, know, you know how bangs is towards you. Yep. Mullet is away from you. Mm-hmm public bathroom is the roll is oriented sideways oh yeah and you can never get a good flat roll on that shit it's yeah. always one ply it's always, yeah, one, always ply. one ply always one ply impossible to roll but you always like end up with at some kind of angle because you're angled mm-hmm. to it and so like it never gets perfectly flat also they're in those are you talking about like they're in those the industrial rolls yeah. that are mounted on the wall that they may have two or three rolls in there and it's this giant plastic cover and you're reaching your hand up and you're like god i hope this toilet paper that's a fucking nightmare i hate that yeah uh, now i've seen the, i've seen the ones that go straight on too mm-hmm. uh those are infinitely better because you're at least like unrolling it the correct way just wild wild west in those public bathrooms yeah, stay sustainable. Make sure you're, t- you're carrying some toilet paper with you and make sure you reuse it. Yeah, make sure. Mm-hmm. Hey, get a bidet. Tell me. You won't, you won't really care about the bags or mullet debate. <laughs> this thought is in the pocket of big bidet. <laughs> big bidet sweeping the nation. All right. Well, that was a fantastic conversation. Chris, thank you so much for coming on today. I got to do a little bit of housekeeping before we wrap up here. So... Last Zone of Truth, we announced HLP Community Nights. Super excited about these. This is an opportunity for the HLP community to get together and honestly, like, kind of just do whatever you want. So we're putting out polls. Do you want to watch a bad movie with us? Do you want to play some sort of big multiplayer game like Drawful? Watch us just, like, hang out and paint minis or what have you. This is just an opportunity for once a month, us all to get together and have fun as a community. You can paint minis too with us. 
That's that's part of the deal. Yeah, you can do whatever you want at home. That's very fair. So the very first HLP community night is coming up Friday, August 5th. I think by the time this comes out, this is going to actually drop the week of August 5th. Yeah. So the pol- polls are probably going to be closed by then. Yeah, I polls imagine. close uh, on Wednesday. Yeah, two okay. days if you're a $10 and up patron to, to make a vote. Yeah, but the mail-in ballots could be sent in earlier. The pale-in ballots, yeah. So are you saying that we could hold the community night and then the mail-in ballots come in after? We have some trickle-in mail-in ballots and we have to change what we did. Mid-community night, yeah. (laughs) All right, so it is open to everybody. That being said, folks who do subscribe to the $10 uh, Patreon tier and not have that control over what we do and then music that we listen to and stuff, so... We have a big old post about that on our Patreon where you can enhance your community night experience if you wish to do so by being part of our Patreon community. But otherwise, we're really looking forward to this. So see you But then. you should join our Discord. If you're not yes. on our Discord, join our Discord because that's where most of this is going to go down. Yeah. Some of it will go down on our Twitch, but a lot of the community aspect of it will be lost if you're not hanging out with us on Discord. So... Uh, we highly recommend you do so. The link to that is, as always, in the episode description. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that about wraps us up for today. So, Chris, anything you would like to say to the folks at home? Make sure you've subscribed to the Patreon. So if, you, if you're not listening to Malevolence, go ahead and check out that Link Legacy season and all of the ones before. We've got so much content on the Patreon feed for you to listen to. And more content coming. Griffin... Bring us home. Finish your drinks. We'll see you in two weeks. Later. Later.